Fantastic. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you uh, this morning. As um, Kieran's already said, that we've been going through the, the book of Acts. We're going to continue to look at the book of Acts this morning. The book of Acts is uh, found in the New Testament, and it kind of gives us the kind of detail of the beginning of the early church. So Jesus, he rose from the dead, and just before he ascended into heaven, he said to his disciples, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations, from Jerusalem, Judea, Sumeria, to the ends of the earth. And then he fills them with his Holy Spirit, and, uh, and they start to carry out this task that they have been assigned to do. And so far in the kind of book of Acts that we've looked at so far, there's kind of been these amazing count, accounts of like um, the disciples standing up and, and, and speaking to whole massive crowds about who Jesus is. And it says like that thousands, 3,000 people were um, said like, what can I do to be saved? And they were added to the church. There's other accounts of like, it says that the Christians, they all met together and they prayed with one another and they shared each other's possessions. And as they did that, it says that God added daily to them the number that were being saved and being added to the church. There's this kind of influx of people that are becoming Christians and and joining um, the church. That's kind of what's been going on in the first few chapters. And the narrative is, is quite exciting. You know, although there's been some people that have been arrested, they're let go, um, and the church is, is growing all the time. Uh, and this morning we're going to kind of look at the next section of the story. We're going to be looking at um, kind of chapter 6 through to chapter 9. Um, and, uh, and we're going to spend some time, I'm just going to spend some time just going through the, the story of what happens next because it has huge implications for everyone in this room as well as everyone that's not in this room. We've already read in the previous chapters that there was no needy persons in the church. That from time to time, people kind of sold their property and, and land and, and gave them the money to the apostles for the apostles to distribute so that there was no needy persons in the church. And so you can imagine as the church grew from you know, just a few hundred to several thousand people that the needs in the church also grew at the same time. And so the apostles decide that they need to kind of put some um, people in place and they uh, appoint seven individuals who are responsible for kind of administrating the daily provision of food, particularly, we're told, to kind of orphans and widows. And, and one of the people that they choose is, is a guy called Stephen. And Stephen, in the book of Acts, he's described in this way. He's described as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. He, he sounds like a great asset to the church, someone who's going to be super useful in kind of overseeing the care and making sure that vulnerable people are looked after. And the result, result of them appointing these people to administer the daily distribution of the food, we're, we're told is this. It says that the word, because of that, the word of God spread. And the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. I find that really interesting. It doesn't say that because they had got these people in post, that the result was that the needs of the poor were met. I'm sure that is what happened, but that's not what it says. It said because they were put in post, the church grew rapidly. That was the result of them having um, these guys in position there, playing their role. And what that tells me is that to get yourself organized as a church and to put in some sort of healthy structure is really important to see church grow. 
So if you're part of our TKC Kids program, you know that the result of what you do is not just that you create a, a great environment for our children, not that you just kind of create a brilliant program of activities for them. Now, the, the result of being on team is actually that you'll see an increase in the number of disciples. If you're part of our car parking team out in the rain first thing this morning, you know the result, the end result of what you are doing in your role is not just that cars are parked safely, it's actually that disciples can be increased in Mid-Sussex. That's, that's what we're all doing. As everyone plays their part, the result is that this thing grows. It gets bigger. And so the church continues to grow, grow but then we kind of read this in chapter 6, <clears throat> verses 8. It says, now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue. And these men began to argue with Stephen, saying, uh, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit of the one whom he spoke. And these men become like frustrated because they basically, they, they're losing an argument um, to Stephen. And, and so the narrative goes on to say that because they're losing, they begin to play dirty, recognizing that they can't win the argument legitimately. And so secretly, they kind of get some people to come along and, and they publicly lie about what Stephen has, has said and what he's done. And the crowd kind of like, you know, don't like that. They go a bit nuts. And so he's arrested and he's brought before the Jewish authorities. And when he's in front of them, they produce more people that give false accusations about uh, what Stephen's done. They basically say he's been blasphemous He's in the way that he's interpreting the Old Testament scriptures. And they ask him, you know, is this true? Is this what you've done? And instead of Stephen just kind of standing up and giving a kind of yes or no answer, what we have in the Bible is like he stands up and he gives his very long kind of sermon, really. It like goes on for like three pages. And, and in it, he, he, he talks to them about the, you know, they're, they're about the Jewish faith. He, he talks to them about their, the founding fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. He, he goes on to talk about you know, Joseph, um, who uh, they rejected, and the brothers sold him into slavery. He talks about Moses, you know, the leader of the Israelite people, and, and how, his, how the people kind of like rejected Moses, didn't really obey him. And on and on and go, he goes. And, and as he's kind of bringing his message um, to a finale, he says this to them. He says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, just like your fathers, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? And they killed the one who, um, who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. He's talking about Jesus. You who received the law uh, that was put into effect through the angels, ha but have not obeyed it, obeyed it. And with that, he ends his message. Thank you, good night. That's it. I mean, we're told that the crowd go bonkers. You know, they are furious at Stephen's words that he was accusing them of killing the Messiah. And as the crowd is going slightly bonkers, you know, it seems that Stephen is slightly distracted and we're told that he's kind of looking up into the sky and he says to them, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man, that's Jesus, standing at the right hand of the Father. Well, this is just too much for the crowds. And it says that they put their hands over their ears and they begin yelling to try and drown out Stephen and what he's talking about. And then they grab hold of Stephen 
after he, they've kind of calmed down a bit, they grab hold of Stephen and they drag him out of the city and they kind of throw him down on the ground and they go up to a high position and they begin just throwing rocks at his head. They're going to stone him to death. You know, the, the Romans had taken away the ability for you know, the Jewish authorities to carry out capital punishment. So this was nothing more than just kind of a, a mob lynching of an angry crowd. And as they're doing this, um, Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, he continues and he says this, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. <clears throat> and while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold their sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there, given approval to his death. Now up until this moment, you know, the Christians have faced opposition. You know, some of them have had a beating. Some of them have been put in prison, but they've been released. That's as far as it's gone. But this is the first moment that someone has been killed because of their faith in Jesus. And this is kind of like a game changer for the disciples. All of a sudden, everything that Jesus had said to them about what it meant to follow him would have slightly been a bit more clearer when he said, the world will hate you because of me. If you follow me, you're going to have to you know, pick up your own cross. It's going to involve suffering. It could even involve death. That's what's happened now. A call to follow Jesus is, is a dangerous calling. It's not something to be entered into lightly. And on the day that Stephen is killed, um, Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, he continues and he says this. He says, a great persecution broke out against the church in, at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And at the heart of this persecution is this man named Saul, who was standing giving approval of, of Stephen's death. Saul was a kind of, he was a strict Jewish Pharisee, educated under a very well-respected rabbi, rabbi, incredibly proud man. In fact, one time later on, he describes, he would have described himself as, you know, a Jew that follows the law faultlessly. He's saying, I was perfect. I followed the letter of the law. There's no one that was as good a Jew as me. I, I was just perfect in every way. He was kind of a kind of big-headed, strict Jewish Pharisee. He didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God, and he was passionate to ensure that this group that was gaining popularity was stopped. He was fanatical about it. And, and, and armed with the authority of the chief priests, we're told in, in chapter 8, verse 3, that Saul began destroying the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women, and he had them put in prison. And Paul wasn't just satisfied with trying to destroy the church in Jerusalem. He, he went from city to city. As the Christians began to be scattered out of Jerusalem, he, he went with them because he wanted to get hold of them and kill off this Christian people. And uh, Acts, again, gives us the details in chapter 9. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any that belonged to the way, that's another way of saying Christ followers, um, whether men or women, he might take them prisoners to Jerusalem. You know, Damascus is, is 338 mile round trip from Jerusalem. You know, there's no cars in, in this day. They're, they're, so, so you're walking on foot or maybe going on a donkey at best. 
And that is a long journey to go on to kind of stop Christians. That tells us the extent that Paul hated Christians. It wasn't like just a, a mild dislike of a group of people that he didn't really agree with their beliefs. No, he was obsessed with getting rid of them. He would travel 338 mile round trip to get hold of some of them, bring them back to Jerusalem and have them put in prison and even killed. And some of the language used to describe Paul is, is kind of deliberately um, strong. He suddenly uses the word like he destroys, trying to destroy the church. The word destroy is the same word that's used to describe like a wild boar that's rampaging through a, through a vineyard says that he was breathing out murderous threats. The, the Christians in Damascus describe him as wreaking havoc in Jerusalem. And, and later on, as, as Paul ref, as Saul reflects on this kind of period in, of his life, he, he says that he had this raging fury that obsessed him. He was in no mood to consider the claims of, of Christianity. Now, things are looking pretty bleak, bleak for, for Jesus' followers. And the days of standing up publicly and, and, and saying about Jesus and seeing thousands of people join the church uh, would have seemed like a, a distant memory. You know, the days of sitting around with your fellow believers and enjoying each other's companies it is long gone. Now they've been scattered and they're being pursued. I very much doubt this is what they were expecting when Jesus said, come follow me, go make disciples and surely I'll be with you. You know, where is he in all of this? Where is God in all of this? You know, ever ask that question? You know, where is God in this? You know, sometimes we can, when things go to pot, when our lives seem to be turned upside down, when things don't go according to how we want them to go, we can equate our circumstances to whether or not God is, is with us and in, is in control still. You know, Positive circumstances, God's with us, God's in control. Negative circumstances, God has abandoned me. You know, God is no longer in control. And yet the Bible tells us that Jesus said, I, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'll always be with you. I'll never abandon you. I'll go with you. It says that, but then at the same time it says, in this world you will have trouble. And so we're called to kind of hold these two things together. Sometimes we don't feel that way, but God is still in control, no matter what our circumstances. And at this moment in the book of Acts, things look bleak for the church, but we're only halfway through the story. And as we read on, we'll discover that God's still got a plan. He's still in control. Things are not maybe going the way they thought they would go, but he's still got a plan. He's still in control as we continue to look at the story. And so as Saul travels along the road to Damascus, kind of fueled with this desire to stop the Christians, come what may, something dramatic happens to him. We read this. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus who you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what to do. And then men that traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground and when he opened his eyes, he could not see anything. So they led him by the hand into Damascus and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. This is a, a pretty dramatic and unexpected moment in Saul's life. 
He later describes it in his own words. He says that it was a, kind of happened at midday. The sky's bright. The, the sun's out. It's a clear day. But the flash that happened, the light that happened, he says, is, was brighter than the midday sun. This is not some sort of flash of lightning that happens at night. He heard the voice of Jesus ask him a question. And Saul has been persecuting Christians for a long time and having them put in prison and, and even killed. But the voice doesn't say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting them? It doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? No, it says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And at once, Saul must have grasped the extraordinary way in which Jesus identifies with his followers. The message is clear. Far from abandoning us, everything that we go through, Jesus goes through. With us, Every rejection, every insult, every setback, every persecution, he experiences along with us. He once told his disciples, he said, if whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. That is the extent that Jesus identifies with us. He doesn't just kind of watch us from a distance. He's not oblivious about the things and the trials we go through. If you're in the middle of your story and things are looking pretty bleak, Jesus is right there with you. He's right there with you, experiencing what you're going through. And as they approached Damascus, Saul, who was fully expecting to ride into Damascus, you know, you know full of power and self-confidence, uh, an opponent of Christ, but instead he's, he's led by hand like a child, humbled, blinded. His self-confidence is gone. And now he's dependent on someone leading him. That's what Saul was experiencing. There could be no mistake in what had happened. He hadn't had a vision. He hadn't had a dream. He had seen the resurrected Jesus. The light that he saw was the glory of Christ. The voice that he heard was the voice of Christ. Jesus had interrupted his life in a spectacular way. Interrupted his career of persecuting Christians. And to finish off the story, God um, goes ahead of Saul into Damascus and he speaks to a Christian there called Ananias. And he says to him, Saul is going to be my chosen instrument who's gonna, I'm going to use to spread the message of Jesus throughout the ancient world. And, and Ananias kind of responds and he says, I, I, I think that's unlikely. I, I have heard many reports about this man. And all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. In other words, that seems very unlikely. I mean, Saul is a guy that's been persecuting Christians, putting them in, in prison. He's this ferocious, wild animal that's obsessed with getting rid of us. He's an unlikely candidate to be used by God to establish his church. But anyway, Anais goes off and he, he finds Saul and he prays for him. He lays his hands on him, and we're told that his eyes, Saul's eyes are opened. He gives his life to Jesus. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's baptized, and he goes on to be used by God to spread the message of Jesus to churches throughout the ancient world. This is an unexpected turnaround in Saul's life. If you had asked him like a week or so before, you know, in a few days' time, you're going to become a Christian, it would have been likely that Saul would have just laughed at you. Or, or probably more likely, he would have just punched you repeatedly in the face. You know, that's never going to happen to me. He would have ridiculed the idea. 
But that is exactly what happened to him. What Paul had left out of his calculations was the incredible grace of God. Later on in life, when he reflects on what happens to him, he says things like, it pleased God to reveal his son Jesus to me. He says, Christ took hold of me. He recognizes that what happened to him, the transformation that took place in his life, was nothing to do with him. It wasn't because he made like subtle changes in his life. It, it wasn't the result of some sort of intellectual pursuit of faith, which kind of made him realize that you know, Jesus was the son of God. No, he recognizes it was nothing of him. It was all of God. And so it is with every one of us. Every story of salvation, including mine, is the result of an encounter with a gracious and loving God. A God who doesn't treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to the things that we've done wrong, but instead demonstrates mercy towards us. You know, sometimes we can ask the, you know, the question, can God really save da 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 I'll leave you to fill in the blank. Can God really save, I don't know, my, my child who is a long way off knowing God? Can God really save them? You know, or, or can God really save my friend who is the, an atheist and every time I have a conversation with him about Jesus, it just kind of, he just gets quite hostile about it. Can God really save an atheist? Or, or can God really save you know, the, the evil dictator of that nation who is so you know, hostile and so aggressive and doing such atrocious things? Can God really save him? Or maybe we'd, you're here and you look at that question and think, you're, what you're think, really thinking is, can God really save me? Well, once Jesus was talking to his disciples and they asked him a question, they said, you know, who then can be saved? And Jesus replies to them and, and he says, you know, with man, this is impossible. It's impossible. In other words, with, with man, no one can be saved. It is impossible for, for, for Paul to be saved. It's impossible. It's impossible for your, your child who's a long way from God to be saved. It's impossible for an atheist to be saved. With man, it's impossible. But Jesus doesn't just kind of stop there and then move on in his conversation. He continues. He says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible, he says. Who can be saved? The answer is, because of the grace of God, anyone. Anyone. People who are seeking after God and people who are not seeking after God. People who are open to the message of Jesus and people who are hostile to the message of Jesus. People who may seem likely to respond and people who may seem unlikely to respond. Because with God, all things are possible. He can change the hardest of hearts. That's the underlying message that we get from this story of, of Paul. You know, the prophet Isaiah, he once said, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. God's arm was long enough to be able to grab hold of Paul and turn him around from a guy who's trying to destroy the church to a guy who spends the rest of his life trying to build the church. The result is his arm is not too short to save. That's the message of Paul's story. It's the message of mine as well. 
When I was a teenager, I go to university, I'm, I'm angry. I'm kind of like quite an angry teenager. You know, I've not got any time for Christianity. I think it's, you know, quite frankly, I just thought it was ridiculous. And I'm angry at even there being an idea of there being a God. And as part of my university um, degree, I write a dissertation at the end. It's called Evil and the Nature of God. It's a snappy title, I know, you know. And basically in, in this, what I'm, I'm doing is I'm just trying to put out some arguments to say, you know, if there is a God, which there could be, he's, he's not a good God. He's an evil God. He's not a kind God. He's not a loving God. He's, he's not a pleasant God. If there is one, he's not a good God. And at the end of my university course, I hand that in for marking. I leave university. And then three months later, I encounter Jesus. And 18 years later, I'm here telling you he is good. He can change your life. He is real. He can break into even the hardest hearts. The arm of the Lord is not too short to save. You know, Jesus commanded his first followers to go and uh, make disciples. And he didn't give them any description of the sorts of people that he should be looking for. He doesn't say, when you go to make disciples, you know, look out for decent people, moral people, kind people, you know, uh, uncomplicated people, people who seem so nice that you can just imagine them becoming a Christian. They're almost a Christian anyway. He doesn't give us any kind of description of who to spot. Why? Because you can't spot a potential disciple. The Bible says everyone is equally lost. But the good news of the gospel and the message that rings loud and clear through this story of Paul's and my story and everyone else in this room who's put their faith and trust in Jesus is that as unlikely as we might be, God has the power to save you. No one is beyond his reach. Whatever the breadth of your expectation of who God will save is likely to be too narrow. It's nothing short of something like this. You know, in, in a given week, we have 2,000 people that come through these doors for various different activities. Each one of them is a potential disciple of Jesus. And that's why how we host them and welcome them and serve them is so important because we just don't know. Every single person that comes through this door in any given week for any given activity, church or external hirers, is a potential disciple of Jesus. But it's more than that. Every single one of the people in Mid-Sussex, all 145,000 of them, are potential disciples of Jesus. But that doesn't even do it. It's bigger than that. Every single person on planet Earth is a disciple, potential disciple of Jesus. Whether they're hostile or not, whether they're currently killing Christians in some nation or not, whether they're banged up in prison or not, every single person is a potential disciple of Jesus because his arm is not too short to save. That's what Paul discovered 
God's love pursued him, stopped him in his tracks, and completely transformed him. You know, at one time, Paul, you know, had power, and he had position, and he had significance, and he had the respect of the Jewish authorities. You know, he was someone important and significant. But after he encountered Jesus, he would later go on to write this. He says, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom, whose sake I have lost all things. I can consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Everything that I was, everything that I was hostile towards God, all the, all the things that I had in my life, all the, kind of the confidence and the self-worth and the, the appreciation of people, all the power I had, I just, you know what? Because of that encounter with Jesus, because he's won my heart, I count it all as rubbish. That is quite a turnaround in someone's life. And God wants to do it again and again. God, who can, who can God save? The answer is anyone. People who are open to the message, people who are not open to the message. People who are you know, hostile to God, people who are not hostile to God. God can save anyone. Because it is dependent on him, not dependent on us. That's the message of what happens in Saul's life. Our God is a God that does impossible things. He is mighty to save. You know, hallelujah, praise the one who set me free. You know, hallelujah, death has lost its grip on me. You've broken every chain. There's salvation in your name. That's what we've been singing. That's the message of Stool. That's the message of my life. If you're a Christian here this morning, that's the message of your life too. And if you're not a Christian here, that can be your story as well. Why don't we stand? We're going to just respond to God as we...